0: This is Undaunted Life, A Man's Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys. Normally, I do podcast episodes about entire subjects or about entire people or books or something like that, but this episode is just about one word, a single word. Now this is a word that's, uh, use was incredibly common when I was growing up. Uh, it's a word that we don't hear, uh, used much anymore in modern society. Uh, we're more so used to it, maybe in private context, maybe you've said it or someone else has said it, but it's a word that I and all of my friends use with frequency while we were growing up as a teenager, even into my early twenties. It's just a word that was used frequently. And that word is the word faggot. Okay. So obviously this word is a slur for homosexual men. And here's the thing. The thing with words is individual words, when they're given so much power to hurt somebody, I think there are some issues with that. But to, to be all quite honest, this single word has been used to malign and hurt a large amount of people for a fairly extended period of time. Okay. And now I'm going to be using this word in this podcast today just to make a point about its use. And so I just want to be clear from the very beginning. I know some people read the title of this and were like, Whoa, what in the world is going on? And they heard me say it just now. I'm probably going to say it several more times, but I'm not condoning the use of this word. And obviously if you listen to the entire episode and listen to the context with which I'll be using it, it'll make a whole lot more sense. So don't write me any crazy emails if you're not willing to listen to the entire podcast. Okay. So uh, one thing I will say about me individually is it's kind of embarrassing looking back. I mean, to be, to be completely honest, it's embarrassing to look back and remember how often my friends and I used this word, like how often we used it in just common conversation or when we were talking about other people that weren't there to defend themselves. And here's the thing is I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat this or try to soften this a bit, but I do want to provide some context. So when used, uh, this word was used basically to emasculate other males. Right so I think back on the times when I used this you know in my preteen years as a teenager in college or in anything like that anytime that word was used it was used to emasculate someone else so it kind of comes to mind someone told me about this when I uh, you know former coworker they said oh you know Louis CK has a really funny joke about words and how they're used and so I remember at that time going and looking up that joke and I'm not suggesting that you do so I'm going to be a, you know basically summarizing it here but the the word faggot was one of the words that Louis CK talked about and he was basically like you know I kind of miss that word And so uh, the point that he was making is every time that he used the word faggot, he was using it to describe the way someone was acting, right? And he wasn't describing someone that was homosexual. It was just somebody that was, you know, asking or acting in an emasculated way or maybe in a feminine way or something like that. So again, I'm not excusing the word and saying that it's okay that it's used as long as it's used in that way. Don't misunderstand me. But here's the thing that I think is the most... Uh, I guess, embarrassing part of everything about this word, especially my use of it in the past is as a Christian, I still use the word and I never really even thought twice about it right? Like I would be in different groups, different settings, mixed company. And some people I knew, some people I didn't know. And that word was just, it would just come out. My friends would say it. I would say it. We're all Christians. We all went to church and it was just something that was said. Right. And no one really, you know, it would have been very different had somebody said the N word or maybe a a slur against another race of some kind or something like that. It would have been a much different type of a thing, but we just all used it. And we didn't even think twice about it again, not excusing any of the behavior. I'm just saying, you know, it is what it is. But all that changed when I read a single book, okay? And this book is the book Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality by Dr. Wesley Hill. I think at the time he wrote the book, he was just Wesley Hill, but Dr. Wesley Hill. And so this book was written by, a, I mean, get ready for this, this is you know, a little bit of a tongue twister here and kind of hard to even understand, but I'll say it a couple of times. But this is written by a non-practicing, still desiring homosexual Christian theologian. Okay. Non-practicing, but still desiring homosexual Christian theologian. Okay. This guy is an assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity school for ministry in Pennsylvania. Um, and this book was released in 2010 and I'm pretty sure that I read the book either in 2010 or 2011, but to, to be honest with you guys, when I think back, I have no idea why I read this book. Like no clue I don't remember buying it I don't remember deciding to buy it I don't remember looking at it and thinking, oh, that should be interesting I don't even know how I found it like I, I really have no clue uh, and I'm sure you know God's laughing right now because he has an idea but the thing is guys is I could not be happier that I found this book I really couldn't be happier it's a it's a really short read I only I think it's I, well, I have it on e version so I'm pretty sure it's under 200 pages it's just not a very long book but this book Completely revolutionized the way that I look at homosexuality and also the way that I look at same sex attraction within the context of the capital C church. So, if that's not enough of a setup for you guys, then I don't know what else to do. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a lot of the high points. Of this book, and kind of describe to you maybe what I was feeling at the time while I was reading it, um, and when we get to the end we 'll talk about kind of how some of my thoughts change in certain areas because a lot of the stuff that was discussed in this book was incredibly interesting, some of it was infuriating, some of it you know I thought was infuriating, but after it got more context it, it didn 't go that way so i 'm just going to go ahead and get into the book so here 's the thing is when I read the very introduction, like the introductory paragraph of this book, I was just kind of like what?" in the world am I doing here? <laughs> like, why, why this book? Like, it, it was just so confusing and, and so, so interesting all at the same time. So uh, I'm going to be reading a lot of different sections of the book today, but I'm going to read you the very, very first paragraph of the introduction of the book. Okay. By the time I started high school, two things had become clear to me. One was that I was a Christian. My parents had raised me to be a believer in Jesus. And as I moved towards independence from my family, I knew that I wanted to remain one that I wanted to trust, love, and obey Christ who had been crucified and raised from the dead for us and for our salvation, as the creed puts it. The second thing was that I was gay. For as long as I could remember, I had been drawn even as a child to other males in some vaguely confusing way. And after puberty, I had come to realize that I had a steady, strong, unremitting, exclusive sexual attraction to persons of the same sex. (sighs) Okay. So, so as a kid, again, who wasn't raised in church, who had pretty standard ideas about homosexuals and things like that, that first paragraph was just like a complete mind dump. It was like, what, what in the world is going to happen here? This is in the first few sentences of the book. But then, um, he goes into a little bit later in the introduction and kind of goes into a little bit deeper detail about what the book is for, right? So to kind of fill in the picture a little bit more. So I'll go ahead and read that here. So this book is neither about how to live faithfully as a practicing homosexual person, nor about how to live faithfully as a fully healed or former homosexual man or woman. J.I. Packer, commenting on Paul's hopeful word for sexual sinners in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, writes, With some of the Corinthian Christians, Paul was celebrating the moral empowering of the Holy Spirit in heterosexual terms. With others of the Corinthians, today's homosexuals are called to prove live out, and celebrate the moral empowering of the Holy Spirit in homosexual terms. This book is about what it means to do that, how practically and not a non-practicing but still desiring homosexual Christian can prove, live out, and celebrate the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in homosexual terms. This book is written mainly for those gay Christians who are already convinced that their discipleship to Jesus necessarily commits them to the demanding, costly obedience of choosing not to nurture their homosexual desires, whether through private fantasies or physical relationships with other gay or lesbian people. Okay, so obviously very, very weighty from the very beginning because... If you've never read anything like this before, if this has never been something that's been uh, part of your normal context, and even just reading through the first few pages, you're just like, okay, this is about to be a serious journey and I really, really need to buckle up. So uh, that's, that's really what it was. But in the early parts of this book, he kind of talks about, as kind of alluded to above that, even in his childhood, he was never attracted to girls like never looked at a girl and was interested in them as anything other than a friend or or a companion to have a discussion with or something like that. Right. He was never attracted to them. Now he does recount being aroused by watching the other boys undress during gym class, right? As, as some sort of weird feeling inside of him that he knew was wrong, that he shouldn't feel that way, but that's just what he felt. He was never aroused at the thought of a girl or of a woman. And this kind of became an issue for Wesley Hill uh, as he got older and continued his attendance in church. So back to the book here. As I left childhood behind and began to learn more about myself and the world I lived in, I came to realize that what had happened to my mind and body was drastically different from what had happened to my friends. When I started meeting with a small group of guys at my church for prayer and accountability, lust was, predictably, one of the main topics of discussion. We like to mentally undress girls we see. What should we do about that? one of the maturely asked our 20-something leader. Come on, we're all red-blooded American males here, another one of the guys chimed in. We can talk about our struggles openly. I came to realize with a mild sense of panic that I couldn't talk about my struggle openly. Couldn't identify with my friends as they discussed their frustrations with knowing how to handle their hormones. My problem was never mentally undressing girls. As they talked, I planned how to keep my answers vague so that my difference would remain a secret. So, uh, I don't, and again, I don't know how, how some of you guys are reacting to this content here, but this is a guy who literally was wired a certain way and was, was unable to really. Uh, come to grips with how he was feeling. And this is in high school when he's in these men's groups and they're all kind of struggling. And this was something that didn't just stop in high school. Obviously this continued through college for a guy like Wesley, Wesley Hill. And so um, now college for a lot of us is it's trying time. Uh, It's a time of self-discovery. You know, the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain still isn't fully developed. So we're still making some pretty stupid decisions, doing things out of emotion. But for Wesley, he was still trying to figure out the thoughts in his head, why he was having the thoughts in his head, why he was leaning in certain directions, and he was having trouble still in college. So I'll read this part, part here when he's referring to his time in college. But in my reading, I also discovered that by far, the majority of Christians, on the basis of their reading of several key passages from the Bible, together with the weight of Christian tradition, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, agreed that homosexual practice was sinful. Having gay sex was off limits. Christians talked regularly, I found, of God's original intention for creation, and that indeed, God, strictly speaking, didn't make anyone homosexual. Rather, homosexuality was one of a myriad of tragic consequences of living in a fallen world stalked by the specters of sin and death. As I read and thought about, as I excuse me, as I read and thought about homosexuality throughout my four years of college, I felt that the things I had learned in writing my initial paper, as amateur as it was, were confirmed. Somehow, in some way, I would have to be faithful to this Christian conviction. That homosexual lust, fantasies, and practice, whether self-stimulated or in partnership with another person, gay or straight, were not God's will for my life. The question for me became then, could I change and become heterosexual? I had, of course, wondered this before, but instead of trying to keep my homosexual feelings under wraps, maybe now was the time to try in earnest, with concerted effort, to invert them. So so basically, guys, he was going to try to ignore his homosexuality, right? He was just going to try to pull through and try to make himself heterosexual and just hope to goodness that at some point he was just going to lose out on, uh, on these feelings, that these feelings were just going to dissipate and go away or that somehow he was going to get feelings for uh, a woman in a heterosexual type of manner. Okay. But that idea kind of came crashing down and it kind of took the help of a friend in a similar circumstance, but with some, something different for that to change for him. So back to the book here. My friend, Jenna, one of the most free spirited and life giving people I knew at the time started battling depression. I didn't find out about her struggle until months after she had found help and was recovering well over lunch. One day, Jenna described that dark time and told me something that had remained with me ever since. I just wanted to be whole again. Wes And I thought that by pretending it wasn't there, the depression would just go away. But ignoring it is not the path to redeeming. If I wanted this depression to be redeemed, I had to face it head on. I tried to swallow the lump in my throat, realizing those words were for me. Ignoring is not the path to redeeming. So guys, again, this is all basically in the introduction. Okay. So pretty heavy stuff right here in the introduction. And I remember this time, I remember reading this book at the time and I'm sitting at my desk and I'm like, man, this, this is so confusing, but I just had to keep going. Right. But then the book kind of took a turn, right? It it took a, what I thought was like an incredible turn. And I was on my way to getting super frustrated. So I'll kind of take you through this. So I'll, I'll read this paragraph to you, and then you can kind of see how, what kind of emotions this evokes in you. It was probably very similar to what happened for me, so back to the book. There are other reasons the church's traditional no to homosexual practice doesn't seem compelling. One is that it simply seems out of character with the Christian message of love, grace, and abundant life. Occasionally, it strikes me again how strange it is to talk about the gospel, Christianity's good news, demanding anything that would squelch my happiness. Much less demanding abstinence from homosexual partnerships and homoerotic passions and activities. If the gospel really is full of hope and promise, surely it must endorse or at least not oppose people entering into loving, erotically expressive same sex relationships. How could the gospel be opposed to love? Okay, so at this point, it was like, what the hell? Like, okay, you you got me with the introduction, you got me interested. What is this nonsense? What is this garbage? But it, it really didn't stop. So let's keep going back to the book. I hear and read similar statements, transposed into theological key from Christians too. According to Genesis, it is not good that the man should be alone. That's Genesis 2.18. These Christians remind us of this. What's more, Jesus castigated religious people who tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. That's Matthew 24.4. And said that his own yoke is easy and his burden is light. Matthew 11.30. Surely this means that no gay or lesbian believer should have to go through life without a partner who can satisfy his or her sexual desires. As a Christian friend once wrote to me, if healing prayer and counseling don't work and a heterosexual relationship is not viable, then well-intentioned, monogamous, homosexual relationships ought to be respected by the church. In short, for a variety of reasons, deciding to accept the Bible and the church's teachings against homosexual practice sometimes doesn't seem very easy. So at this point, I remember being like, all right, I'm starting to get furious. I think this is all bullcrap. This is one of those, you know, all grace, no law type of things. Like I can't be down with this, but then it just kept going. Okay. So here we go. Back to the book. I have pondered carefully, frequently from this angle, then that what it is that keeps me as a homosexual Christian from pursuing my sexual fulfillment. There is after all, an obvious and easy solution for people like me who feel frustrated by their homosexuality. I could find a partner and learn to express, rather than repress, my homoerotic impulses. Didn't Paul himself say in one of his letters that it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion? 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Given that option, there must be a reason someone would voluntarily remain in a state of frustration. Why do I choose to abstain? On the surface, the Bible and the church's demand for homosexuals not to act on their desires can seem old-fashioned, life-taking, oppressive. But could it be that if I place that demand into a larger story, then perhaps, just perhaps, it won't seem as irrational, harsh, and unattainable as it otherwise might? Could the Christian story of what God did for the world in Christ be a framework that makes the rules, don't go to bed with a partner of the same sex, don't seek to cultivate and nurture desires and fantasies of going to bed with a partner of the same sex? Makes sense. But at this point, the the ship's kind of turning, and you can you can kind of sense that the ship is turning a little bit. And then Wesley Hill hits us with this. And this is huge, 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 right? So I'm going to try to read this as deliberately as possible because I want you to get this. Okay. Back to the book. These questions have been the deciding factor in my choice to say no to my homosexual desires. In the end, what keeps me on the path I've chosen is not so much individual proof texts from scripture or the sheer weight of the church's traditional teaching against homosexual practice. Instead, it is, I think, those texts and traditions and teachings as I see them from within the true story of what God has done in Jesus Christ and the whole perspective on life and the world that flows from that story as expressed definitively in the scriptures. Like a piece from a jigsaw puzzle finally locked into its rightful place, the Bible and the church's no to homosexual behavior makes sense to me. It has the ring of truth. As J.B. Phillips once said of the New Testament, when I look at it, As one piece within the larger Christian narrative, I abstain from homosexual behavior because of the power of that scriptural story. So he kind of took us on a little bit of a side road there for a second. You know, it kind of seemed like he was about to spend the next 150, 175 pages or so basically convincing us all that homosexuality was actually correct, that Jesus was actually okay with it all and those types of things. But he brings it right back and then he basically just follows on this train of thought for the remainder of the book. And so guys, I'm not going to go into the entire book. This is something I certainly want all of you to read on your own but I'm going to pull out some different sections. So one thing that was really interesting throughout the middle part of the book, he, was, he basically talked about four ways in which the Christian story provides a context in which to make some sense of the Bible's no to homosexual practice. So we kind of got a little bit of that in the last section of the book that I just read, but essentially he goes into more detail on four different things. So I'm going to go into those now. The first one is the Christian story promises the forgiveness of sins, including homosexual acts, to anyone who will receive it through Jesus's death and resurrection. And this is still in the book here. One of the most striking things about the New Testament's teaching on homosexuality is that right on the heels of the passages that condemn homosexual activity, there are, without exception, resounding affirmations of God's extravagant mercy and redemption. God condemns homosexual behavior, and amazingly, Profagately, at great cost to himself, lavishes his love on homosexual persons. So, this is something that's important for us to realize, even as heterosexual male Christians, that um, really the Christian story promises forgiveness for all sins. Now, uh, for us, <laughs> every generation kind of has their varsity sins, their junior varsity sins, but everything is seen the same way to God, right? And so, this first point that he's making is basically the context through which we can see this. This is another one of those sins that God can forgive somebody of if they act out on it, okay? So the second thing that he talks about is, uh, I'll just go right into the book and he'll talk about the second one here. And that is, the message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation, to one degree or another, experience the same frustration I do as God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all of the natural desires and affections. Theologian Robert Jensen observes, after all is said and done, scripture is brutally clear about homoerotic practice. It is a moral disaster for anyone, just as adultery is a crime for anyone. Of course, every mandate of the law is harder on some with their predilections than on others with theirs. In this fallen world, that is always true of law, divine or human. Does God's law then mandate frustration for those unattracted or repelled by the opposite sex? I fear it does, just as, given the fall, each of us, with his or her predilections, will be blocked by God's law in some painful, perhaps deeply painful way. So guys, he's talking about the fact that, you know, some things, some proclivities in our lives are going to pull us in certain directions, but they're not all created equal. Okay. In terms of the level of pain that they might bring us. Right. So, um, sometimes sanctification is a painful process. And I think any of you listening to this podcast that have gone through painful times that you've been sanctified through the love of Jesus Christ. This is something that you felt and that, you know, to be true, but God puts forth the law for how to live, right? And we don't all naturally fit into it, right? Uh, All of us have different things that are uh, taking us away from God, things that are in our wiring, things that we've made choices to do, uh, different addictions that we have that are going to be basically kind of pulling us away. Okay, so back to the book here. When we engage with God in Christ and take seriously the commands for purity that flow from the gospel, we always find our sinful dreams and desires challenged and confronted. When we homosexual Christians bring our sexuality before God, we begin or continue a long, costly process, process of having it transformed. From God's perspective, our homoerotic inclinations are like the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst, to borrow Frederick Bauchner's fine phrase. Yet, when God begins to try and change the craving and give us the living water that will ultimately quench our thirst, we scream in pain, protesting that we were made for salt, the change hurts. Are homosexuals to be excluded from the community of faith? Asked one gay Christian in a letter to a friend. Certainly not, he concluded, but anyone who joins such a community should know that it is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. Engaging with God and entertaining the transformative life of the church does not mean that we get a kind of a free pass, an unconditional love that leaves us where we are. Instead, we get a fiercely demanding love, a divine love that will never let us escape from its purifying, renovating, and ultimately healing grip. And this means that our pain, the pain of having our deeply ingrained inclinations and desires blocked and confronted by God's demanding for purity in the gospel, far from being a sign of our failure to live the life God wants, may actually be the mark of our faithfulness. So that's just an incredible section there, guys. It's a lot of stuff to unpack, and I hope you caught most of that. If you didn't, feel free to go ahead and re- rewind a little bit and get some more of that. But This is an incredible thing that he's talking about this context through which culturally we don't we don't talk about it in this way as something that can be controlled, but something that should be controlled, even though it's one of our desires. So the third thing he talks about here is this. The Christian story proclaims that our bodies belong to God and have become members of the corporate communal body of Christ. This is yet a third reason scripture and the church's no to homosexual practice makes sense to me, though it sounds politically incorrect in modern ears. The gospel has always said that God may demand from us what he wants, since we do not belong to ourselves. Strictly speaking, we have no inalienable rights. So, this is important where he's basically talking about the practicality of what the body is. So all of us think that, oh, it's my body, my choice. You know, we talked about that on the abortion episode, which is the last episode of this podcast and all, and all the way back on podcast number six. And, you know, that's just not really the way we look at it. If you go back to the 21 day men's devotional that we have on the version Bible app, we talk about that in the the physical week about how your body is not yours. Like it was purchased with a price and you're going to have to honor it in a way that God sees fit. And the fourth and last thing he talks about is here. Fourth and finally, the Christian story commends long-suffering endurance as a participation in the sufferings of Christ. In light of this, my objection that abstaining from homosexual sex will be too difficult doesn't seem as strong or compelling as it once did. While taking a German class in college, I learned that in some old Teutonic and Scandinavian religions and mythologies, there is an ideal of the fated warrior. This is the champion who heads into battle fully aware that doom awaits him at the end defeat rather than victory is the mark of the true hero. The warrior goes out to meet his inevitable fate with open eyes. So guys, again, a lot of really heavy stuff here. I hope you're still with me at this point, but this is stuff that this guy was dealing with, right? In in just a few dozen pages, he's laying this stuff out there, but this took him years to figure out like confusing moments, moments where he had to have been overcome with emotion and confusion and anger and all kinds of different things. But here 's the thing, guys is, this is all kind of easy to say. like here I am sitting here recording this in my studio. This is easy to say, but think about if you were actually wired this way. Think about if these were your feelings, not just some sort of feelings you know out in the ether that don 't really connect to you like this has got to be really, really hard to live out and and he really talks about it in those terms, and we 'll go back to the book here there 's actually three different quotes from three different sections that I want to kind of bring together for you to kind of put into context how how hard this would be to do. So here's the first one. The sorrow and suffering we experience as homosexual Christians is that of saying goodbye to any sure hope of satisfying our sexual cravings In choosing fidelity to the gospel. We agree to bear up under this burden for as long as is necessary. The the second one is here. The homosexual Christian who chooses celibacy continually to one degree or another, it seems to me, finds himself or herself longing for something relationally that remains tragically tantalizingly just out of reach. And the last one here. In some profound sense, this love of God, expressed in his yearning and blessing and experienced in our hearts, must spell the end of longing and loneliness for the homosexual Christian. If there is a remedy for loneliness, surely this must be it. In the solitude of our celibacy, God's desiring us, God's wanting us, is enough. The love of God is more valuable than any human relationship. So guys, I want you to think about this for yourself. So my assumption here is that the majority of the listeners here of this podcast are male and the majority of you listening to this are heterosexual, that you don't have same sex attraction. I just want you to think about this. Think about as a guy not being able to get your sexual cravings satisfied. So just in basic terms, I don't mean some crazy sexual fantasies. I'm just like your normal sexual cravings if you couldn't get them satisfied. And that the thing keeping you from satisfying them is God's law. And think about your reaction to what would be happening then. Would you maybe feel like God wasn't for you at that moment? That if God was a loving God, he would just let you do the thing that you wanted to do? So so think about it in that context. And I think that should kind of tell you where a guy like Wesley Hill is coming from. But but also think about the fact that society is telling you that it's okay. Society is telling you that, man, just, just go for it. And it's really just at the edge of your fingertips. And all you have to do is, is go over, you know, go over that line just a little bit and you can be satisfied in a way that you think is okay. But here's a guy in Wesley Hill that is basically dedicated. I think he may have even said this in a, in an interview at one point, he's dedicated himself to going to bed alone for the remainder of his life. He He's planning on leading a, you know, relationally worldly, relationally, um, sense to be very, very lonely. Right. But the thing that keeps him going, the thing that keeps him fired up, the thing that keeps him whole is the gospel. And think about how powerful that is. Think about the thing that you struggle with. Think about the, the, the addiction or the way that you've gone, the mistakes that you've made. And think about those things only being satiated by the gospel. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible. But the thing about this, and th- this is a really important thing that I think Wesley Hill points out, is that the, a difficulty of this kind of life is going somewhere. Like, it's not just difficult for the sake of being difficult. I mean, a lot of you guys out there, you work out. Think about if you worked out really, really hard and never saw any results. So you ran sprints, but your cardio didn't get any better. Like, you did pull-ups, but you, you could never get stronger. Like, just think about that. But this is a difficulty for these people that is going in a certain direction. And, and I really like how Wesley Hill ends his book, and he ends it with this quote here. Slowly, ever so slowly, I am learning to do this. I am learning that my struggle to live faithfully before God in Christ with my homosexual orientation is pleasing to Him. And I am waiting for the day when I will receive the divine accolade, when my labor of trust and hope and self-denial will be crowned with His praise. Well done, good and faithful servant, the Lord Christ will say. Enter into the joy of your Master. So guys, just an incredible book. Like I said, I I really would suggest that all of you read that. We'll talk about that more here in a little bit, but we just have to think about this through the context of modernity as well, because look what modernity has done with homosexuality, you know, public perception wise. And I said this in the last podcast in episode 24, but in 2008, all the different candidates that were running for the democratic ticket for president, every single one of them thought that same sex uh, marriage should not be allowed. Right? Every single one of them, at least publicly, defended the biblical definition of marriage and relationship as one woman and one man. Right? Here we are in 2018. It's completely different. And it's not like it just changed recently, it changed years and years ago. Right? Um, another thing that I heard recently, I heard this on an interview that Mark Driscoll was, Driscoll was giving, but um, one of the top 10 reasons listed for people not supporting Christianity is its quote unquote intolerance of homosexuality. Right? Just think about that. But also we see in a lot of different de- denominations, there are gay people that are serving in ministry. There are openly gay people that are serving in roles that, um, you know, help out with children or singles ministries. Like this is not, it's, it's not really uncommon. And then uh, in the last week, Pope Francis came out and, you know, said another Pope Francisy type thing. And I'll just go ahead and read to you from this New York Times article. A Chilean survivor of clerical sex abuse has said that Pope Francis told him in a private meeting this month that God has made him gay and that both God and the pontiff loved him that way, a remarkable expression of inclusion for the leader from the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. He said to me, Juan Carlos, that's not a problem, said Juan Carlos Cruz, the abuse survivor, describing having told the Pope that he was gay in a long meeting in the Vatican. You have to be happy with who you are. God made you this way and loves you this way, and the Pope loves you this way the Vatican declined to comment on the Pope's private remarks. So the reason why they declined to uh, say something about the Pope's private remarks is because they actually think this way. So we have that type of thing pop up. We've had things like before, like, you know, Numbnuts Carl Lentz, whenever he came out in 2014, and he basically, well, I'll go and read you the quote that he said. This was in a Huffington Post article, uh, or it was an interview that he did for them in 2014. Jesus was in the thick of an era where homosexuality, just like it is today, was widely prevalent. And I'm still waiting for someone to show me the quote where Jesus addressed it on the record in front of people. You won't find it because he never did. Okay, this is literally a a ridiculous thing, but I'm not going to get too much into it here. I'm going to include an article here at the end of this podcast. But basically, I made a response to this that basically said Jesus did indeed talk about homosexuality, like 100%. And I'll go and read a little quote from an article that I'll share with you later. But Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Yes, the word homosexuality never appears, but we're reading this verse through the eyes of someone who understands 21st century English and the meaning of those words therein. In reality, the Greek word used here for sexual immorality is porneia, where we get the modern word for porn. And the first century writer-reader would have understood that to mean any sexual relations or acts outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. So, in the mind of the first century writer-reader, they would have known that to include adultery, polygamy, bestiality, and let, yes, homosexuality. Thus, Jesus 100% made reference to homosexuality during his ministry. Lentz is dead wrong on this subject. So, again, I don't want to get too far off onto the subject matter about Carl Lentz, but but the thing about it is, is there's a lot of cultural confusion here. So uh, modern culture tells us that, you know, we we need to be accepting of this, that even in the church, it needs to be accepting of this. But again, I want to bring us back to the main thing here, which is Jesus is 100% grace and 100% truth. I talk about this literally all the time, but I have to because people forget about it. Jesus is not 50% grace and 50% truth. He's 100% of both. So I think it was on a Q and a podcast, uh, back a couple of weeks ago or months ago where someone asked me, you know, you know, there's a couple of gay people in our choir. Would Jesus come and preach at our church? And I think my answer was really short. It was like, yeah, of course he would, but he would call a spade a spade. He would say that, no, this, this is wrong behavior, but I love you. And I forgive you if you will turn from this. Right. And so it's kind of one of those things that I think is important to talk about here is there's, there's so much confusion. And then you have how you were brought up. You have how you were raised, you have how you uh, interacted socially with other people, with other guys on your teams or at work or something like that. And there's things that you say and do, and it just ends up kind of being part of your paradigm, part of what you believed. But this is one thing that I want to kind of say to you guys, and this is kind of how I want to wrap this whole thing up and why I'm calling this podcast, why I stopped using the word faggot, because I can boil it all down to one thing. So I know a lot of times at the end of the podcast I'll give you, well, here's my three thoughts, or here's five things that we can consider, or here's my 10 favorites, whatever, whatever's. But I can boil this whole thing down into one single reason why I stopped using that word, and it's this: I didn't want to be a blockade between someone that suffers from same-sex attraction and Jesus. I don't want to be the person that blocks someone from potentially meeting Jesus. Now, that is not putting myself at some sort of elevated level. That if, if I do something like say this word or say it in an improper context, that somehow someone's never going to be able to meet Jesus. I'm not going to belittle the Holy Spirit in that way. But the thing about it that I realized and that hit me really square in the nuts after I read this book was if somebody struggles with same-sex attraction and they hear me say that word, right? So I'm in a social setting and I use that word. I make fun of somebody or something like that and I, I use it to demean another guy. Do you think that that person's going to come to me for help or advice? Like, think about that. That is the scenario that scared me to death and made me wonder if I had done that to somebody at some point in my life during my teen years. That I used that word, I just used it flippantly and just kind of threw it out there. What if somebody that I knew really well needed someone to talk to about their same sets of and they knew, well, I can't go to Kyle because you know, he, he uses that word and he's around, around a bunch of guys, a bunch of athletes or a bunch of whoever's and, and they all say that word. So I can't talk to him. I think I'll just not talk about it then. And I don't know that that situation happened. No one's come to me after the fact, but I realized that, that at some point in my life, I may be the only person that they'll you know, ever talk to about that. And I want to make sure that I'm as open and easy to talk to when it comes to that. And here's the thing, guys, you may be the only person they'll ever talk to as well. That may be a scenario for you. Like, I remember one point there, there's a good buddy of mine. um, He told me about his two of his best friends. Two of his best friends are homosexual and they're in a relationship together. And, you know, after the marriage law got passed, you know, basically ramrodded by the Supreme Court down all of our throats that eventually these two were going to get married right in my home state of Oklahoma. And he talked to me about that and he's just kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't really know, like, should I say anything or, you know, you know, I know Christians were just supposed to love people. So should I just kind of let it go and blah, 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 and all these things. And, you know, he kind of caught me off guard with the conversation. So I kind of just had to go with my gut. And even now I I feel like I may have said the right thing, but basically what I told him is I said, you are uniquely suited to talk to both of these people in a way that I wouldn't because these people don't know me. So if I just walked up to them as they were trying to plan out their wedding or something like that, and I tried to tell them about how wrong homosexuality was and how the Bible says this or the Bible says that, it would just fall on deaf ears because I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with these guys. Like I don't love them, right? I don't love them as a friend would love another friend, but he does. Like my buddy did love these guys. He loved them as friends. Like he wanted what was best for them. And I just told him and I encouraged him as I said, if not you, then who? If you don't have this conversation with them, who will, who's going to have this conversation with them. And so I encouraged him to talk to them about what, what they were doing and about their lifestyle and about the choices that they made. And that's one thing I want to be very, very uh, particular about here is about the word choice. So some of you may have been, you know, furious during uh, my reading of this, or you kind of think, you know, where I'm going with all this, and maybe it's outside of anything that you've ever considered. I, I don't really know what, but here's the deal. God made us in a way that allowed for free will, right? We're, we're able to love. I said this in the last podcast, but in order for us to have the ability to love, we have to have free will, right? We're not robots. We're not automatons as C.S. Lewis called it in Mere Christianity. Like that's not who we are, but that does not mean that we always have to act on our impulses and our inclinations, right? So I am not wired for same sex attraction. Uh, attraction. I'm very attracted to females. I've only ever been attracted to females, right? So that's not something that I struggle with, but I have other struggles. I have other issues that I have to deal with other crosses to bear, if you will. But the thing about it is, is just because those are my inclinations to, to, you know, try and do those things or be drawn towards that, those things, that doesn't mean that I have to succumb to them. Oh, because that's just who I am. I was born this way. That's how I was wired. That's not the case. Like in, in my family, there's, there's been some alcoholism in my family at different points. I've had family members die because of alcoholism. So I kind of have that in me somewhere genetically, right? So do I just use that as an excuse to get blackout drunk every night? I mean, no, like that, that'd be ridiculous. Like, and nobody in society would be okay with that. The same is true with same sex attraction, whether you're a girl that's attracted to other girls or a guy that's attracted to other guys, just because you are wired for that does not mean you need to act out on it. Right there, there is no sin in temptation. Being tempted is not sin, right? I mean, just think about it. Jesus was out in the desert for forty days and forty nights. He was tempted in every conceivable way, and this is a man who never sinned. So he was tempted, but he never sinned. He never gave in to those temptations. And and I'm sitting here as a heterosexual male trying to even like get in the brain of somebody that's struggling in this way, and it's it's I can't like it's just not I just don't understand it, but. It's incredible to hear the story of a guy like Wesley Hill to Wesley Hill, and to, to kind of hear what he's had to do and what he's, you know, had to overcome in his own brain. And guys, the reason why he's able to do that is because of the power of the gospel. And that's the only reason. Because this is maybe the easiest time in the United States, in the history of the United States, to come out as homosexual. I mean, you know, if, if you come out as homosexual, like, they're going to, you know, like your post on Facebook several thousand times. They may even throw you your own parade. Like it's just, that's the way that it is now. It's not like this big dramatic thing anymore. So he could just do that. And there are certain pockets of Christianity and certain denominations that would welcome him with open arms and tell him, you don't have to change at all. God loves you no matter what. Here's the thing. God does love him no matter what, but God wants him to repent of the things that he's done or the actions that he's taken towards a sinful way of way of being right. And so that's the thing that I want all of us to kind of consider is we need to be thinking about ourselves in this story, because I'm not going to be so naive to think that there isn't somebody listening to this podcast that's struggling with same-sex attraction either. Like the the odds of that, and really the statistics kind of bear out that somebody listening to this podcast right now, that's a guy has struggled with same-sex attraction or is still struggling with it now. I mean, think about what it would be like for you to be able to go and get help because here's the thing let's say i was an alcoholic i'm not but let's say i was i could go to my church today and walk up to one of the pastors on staff and say hey i'm an alcoholic i need help and and that's kind of easy right cuz everyone's kind of heard of that problem like that's kind of an easy one yeah let's let's get you on the 12 steps let's get all the alcohol taken out of your house and you know don't go to any bars here's your accountability partner you know that kind of stuff this one's a little different this requires a little bit more handholding this one requires requires a little bit it's a different process than just your normal 12 step process. You know what I mean? And so think about if you were in that situation, how you would want to be treated. Like, would you want to hear a slur that's directed at somebody that has your problem out of the mouths of somebody that you trust and respect? I don't think you would. And so Guys, this was an unbelievably challenging book. It stretched me in a lot of ways, but it's one of the most important books that I've ever read. And, and there may be other books out here on this exact subject that did a better job than Wesley Hill did. I, I don't know. I don't really care. But this book is on the 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list on our website. And it's for this one reason that it's the only book that I've seen that I feel like encapsulates the story in a somewhat autobiographical manner to where it's actually palatable for the general audience, right? And so um, for all of you guys, if this is a word that you use, you know, the word faggot, I would strongly, strongly urge you to stop doing that cold turkey right now. And I, I got to be honest with you. It, it's a word that just kind of comes up in your brain. And it's something that you just think, and you say it and you da, da, da and all those things. But just like anything else, you create new neural pathways where that word is no longer included. And that, that doesn't mean that you're perfect. And guys, I was the first one to throw myself on the sword here. This was a word I used a lot for a lot of years. And I wish I could go back and change that, but I can't. I can only change what I'm doing going forward. But that's a word you're using. You may be cutting off somebody who wants to talk to you, who sees you as a confidant, that they need help in this area. Someone that you may be able to lead to Christ. So if you cutting one word out of your vocabulary can end up you know, leading to eternal salvation for somebody, I consider that worth it. And here's the thing, if there's anybody out there listening to this right now, if you have struggled with same-sex attraction, you, you would consider yourself a Christian that you want to be a follower of Christ and you don't know exactly how to do that in a in a discipleship type manner with Jesus, and you feel like you're struggling because of some proclivity inside you towards same-sex attraction, please reach out to us. Please hit us up at info at undaunted.life. Please email us because we want we don't want you to feel like you're alone, all right? If you just need to tell somebody, you don't know me. So just throw it out there to me and and we'll see what we can do to help you out, man. But you shouldn't have to deal with this on your own. All right, guys, we're going to do a quick resilience boost here. And as you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to focus on spiritual and mental. And I got two things for you. You can probably see where this was going. Go ahead and pick up this book and read it. Okay. It's called Washed and Waiting Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality by Wesley Hill. So you can find it on Amazon. I think there's an audio book out there. Not sure if Wesley Hills ones reading it, but it it's it's out there. It's easy to find. It's a short read, but it's an incredible book. And then also I included the article in there that I made mention of earlier. It's the article that I wrote for Dead Men. Um, I think this was late last year, but it was basically entitled "Is Carl Lentz the most dangerous person in Christian ministry?" Because I go into this discussion about what Jesus's relationship to talking about homosexuality publicly was. Okay, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I really do appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Wherever you're listening to this, and refer your friends to listen, and tag us on social media. Okay, guys, if you do that, we'll find your post and we'll give it a like. Okay, if we deserve a five star review, please leave us a five star review. That's how this is going to continue to grow, guys. Okay, I'm booking speaking engagements for 2018. So if you want me to come speak to your team, to your church, to your Sunday school, to your retreat, whatever, hit me up. Info at Undaunted Life. Again, that's info at Undaunted Life. Our website is www. Undaunted Life, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life, and on Facebook. Dot com backslash undaunted life check out our free devotionals on the Uversion bible app just search undaunted life under plans and as always we want to thank the band august burns red for allowing us to use their music library for our content the intro outro track on this podcast is their song king of sorrow which is off their latest record entitled phantom anthem the links to all of this are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep cultivating manly resilience keep forging spiritual mental and physical toughness keep seeking the Lion of Judah.